This is what you need to understand, though, as we unpack this topic. There is an undeniable relationship between the suffering and pain that we go through in our life and the development of our trust and confidence in God. Let me say that one more time. There is an undeniable relationship between the pain and suffering that we're going to go through in our life and the development of our trust and confidence in God. And I'll just say this also. It's not an accidental relationship. It's an intentional relationship. And it's a relationship that God has leveraged from the beginning of time. And maybe the best illustration of why there's so much pain and suffering in the world, maybe the best illustration of why, is, why does so much bad stuff happen to good people can be seen in one of the great stories in the New Testament in the life of Jesus. And it's one that's all so familiar like we looked at last week. And it's what I want to talk about. But let me just say this. Um, what you're going to discover in this story is this. And I'll just tell you right now, some of you, this principle we're going to talk about, you've never thought about God in these terms, so it's going to make you uncomfortable. In fact, it's going to make you squirm a little bit. But this is a story where Jesus doesn't just leverage a bad circumstance to grow somebody's confidence and faith. This is actually a story where Jesus creates, he causes the bad circumstance in order to grow somebody's confidence and trust in him. And in this story, we're going to learn how God uses bad stuff, suffering, pain, tragedy, to do something in us, not to us. And that's very, very important because as you're going through life and you go through bad circumstances, when you go through tragedy, if you feel like God is doing something to you, you're going to come out the other side angry at God. But if you think that God is doing something in you so that he can do something through you, your trust and confidence will grow. So if you have your Bible, let's go to John chapter 11. Again, a familiar story. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. <clears throat> he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. By the way, Bethany was a little bit mountain town that was a uh, mountain village, hamlet, that was located a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. We would say it was in the Burbs. And that's where Martha, who was the oldest of the three, she probably owned the house. She lived there with her sister Mary and her brother Lazarus. And if you read through the Gospels, you, you get the idea that it was a quiet place. It was a place where Jesus could go to get away from the crowds. He could, he could just he could kind of put his feet up. He could chill out a little bit. He knew he could get a good night's rest. He could get a good meal. There wasn't going to be a lot of pressure. And it's interesting, over time, these three siblings, uh, they came, became not just good friends of Jesus. They became very, very committed to following Jesus. They were probably in Jesus' inner circle. I mean, they, they supported him financially. Jesus obviously knew them by name, knew what was going on in their life. So there was, there was a special relationship between Jesus and these family members. And so when Lazarus becomes sick, you know, Mary and Martha, they're certainly aware of the fact that Jesus has healed a lot of people already in his ministry. In fact, he's healed a lot of people he didn't even know. So it just, makes, it, just, it, it just makes sense, right? It's just assumed that certainly Jesus is going to heal Lazarus because he loves Lazarus. See, it, that's, that's why you read in verse 3, the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That kind of says something about the relationship. They didn't even have to use Lazarus' name. The one you love, the one that, that you've been in our home, you've enjoyed his company, he is, he is sick. Verse 4. It says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. So Jesus gives us a little insight right there, telling us that sometimes God does allow bad stuff to happen. He allows suffering and pain and tragedy so that he can leverage it for good. So we read in verse 4, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. So that God's son, obviously a reference to Jesus, may be glorified through it. Now look what it says. Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he made a beeline down to Bethany. No, that's not what it says. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, 
He stayed where he was two more days. And so Jesus hears that Lazarus, the one that he loves, is sick, and he does the exact opposite of what you would expect him to do. By the way, let me just say this. I, I think it's stories like this that make the Bible so credible. Because if you were just making this up, if you were just writing fiction in order to get people to follow Jesus, to love the teachings of Jesus, see, you wouldn't include a story like this one. Because everything about this story is wrong. This is not the image that we want of Jesus, that he doesn't care, that he's not compassionate, right? I mean, Jesus gets word that Lazarus, the one he loves, is sick, and Jesus just decides, you know what? I'm not going to do anything about it. Meanwhile, Mary and Martha are watching their brother slowly die. And I would imagine that maybe Martha said, hey, Mary, I know Jesus must be coming. I'm going to go out in the road and look for him. You watch Lazarus. And Martha probably went out, and she walked up and down the road and looked as far as she could see and, and stopped travelers who were going by. Have, have you seen Jesus the Nazarene, the teacher, the miracle worker? Nobody had seen him. And so Martha would come in, and they would sit, and they would watch Lazarus as his life slowly slipped away. And maybe Mary said, let me go look for a little while. But this is going on back and forth. Nothing. Jesus never shows up. He doesn't even respond. By the way, have you ever experienced something like that? I mean, you find yourself in a situation where, wow. I mean, you are on your knees before God. And you're like, God, come on. I'm telling you, God, I need a job. God, we need money. We can't even put food on the table. God, I just got my physician's report back. I need a miracle in my life. And if you're like me, you plead, you beg, you barter. And sometimes there's no response whatsoever, just, just dead silence. Ever experienced that? Just about a couple of weeks ago, Laura and I, we, we have something that literally we've been praying for for years, you know. And it was kind of coming to a head. and So we were in bed and Laura reached over. She took my hand and she said, you want to pray about it? And I'm like, nah. Nah. If he doesn't know by now, he doesn't know. I don't even want to pray about it. I mean, we all go through those times like, yeah, what's the point, right? But notice verse 7 and then. See, two days after no activity, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. Now, understand Judea was right by Bethany. And, and, G, and Judea has not been a happy place for Jesus and his disciples. So the disciples responded in verse 8, but rabbi, they said. And it's like, don't you remember? They're always trying to remind Jesus of something. Don't you remember? A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. Jesus, you do remember that, right? What they're really thinking is this. If we go to Judea, and they once again try to stone Jesus, <laughs> there's a pretty good chance we're going to get stoned too. Collateral damage, not a good thing, right? That's what they're really thinking, right? By the way, these are the heroes of our faith, these guys. These are the guys we name our kids after. We used to name our kids after. Now you parents, you name your kids weird stuff. But we used to name them Matthew, Mark, stuff like that. But anyway, now it's like Fruit Loop and stuff like that. I don't know where your parents can. But anyway, verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back, Jesus, hmm, doesn't seem smart, seems a little risky. A lot of people are starting to follow you now, doesn't seem very responsible. And one of the disciples, maybe he, he speaks up and says, I got this idea. Why don't you just heal Lazarus the way you healed that Roman centurion servant? Remember that, Jesus? I mean, you just said the word and he was healed and it was awesome. We didn't even have to go there. Let's do one of those miracles. And if you do that then we don't have to worry about, I mean, Jesus, you don't have to worry about getting stoned, right? So verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, 
He'll get better. A little rest, Jesus, he's going to be good as new. Now we really don't have to go to Judea. Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, where is he getting this information? See, there's no texting back then. I know some of you can't understand that. But where is he getting this stuff, right? Lazarus is dead, but this is what I want you to see. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. To which we respond, yeah, but what about Lazarus' sake? Yeah. What about Mary and Martha's sake, right? But Jesus says to these guys, for, for your sake, I am so glad I wasn't there. And I'm glad he died. And I'm glad Mary and Martha had to watch him die. And I'm glad their hearts are broken. And I'm even, I'm even glad for the disappointment they have in me right now. I'm glad for all of that. Verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Why? Why, Jesus? So that you may believe. I'm glad I wasn't there so that your trust and confidence in me will have the opportunity to grow. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You think, wait, wait a second, Mike. Are you saying that it's more important to God that our trust and confidence in him grows than it is that we're happy? Are you saying that God would actually let someone die just so that we would have bigger faith? Are you saying that God would cause us to suffer so that our confidence and trust in him will grow? Is it really that big of a deal to God? Does it really mean that much to him? That's exactly what I'm saying. But more importantly, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. And for some of you, it's really, really, especially if you're just kicking the tires of Christianity, it's really, really hard for you to wrap your head around this idea that God would do something like that. In fact, many of you, you've said things like this. I just can't believe in a God that would allow. You fill in the blank. I couldn't believe in a God that would allow a child to be molested and abused. I could never believe in a God that would allow a natural disaster to kill thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, if he actually had the power to stop it. Yeah, I don't think I could ever believe in a God that would allow innocent Americans to be killed from these no-good terrorists. I don't think I could believe in a God like that. Well, this is what you need to know. If you can't believe in a God that would allow bad stuff to happen, then you can't believe in the God of the Bible. Because he did. Jesus says, guys, I set this whole thing up because it's that important to me. Forget Lazarus dying. Forget how brokenhearted Mary It's more important to me that your trust and confidence grows. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Mike, I'm just not comfortable with that. Well, I'll, get, I'll tell you something as your pastor. I'm not comfortable with that either. But that's what Jesus said because that's how important our confidence and trust is to him. So verse 15, it says, Jesus says, but let us go to him. Oh, now that he's dead. Let's go. Let's go to Bethany. And so finally, a few days later, Martha looks. And by this time, she wasn't even looking for Jesus anymore. Maybe she was out shopping, but she sees Jesus coming down the road. And she runs up to Jesus, and she says to him what we've all said to God in some way at some time in our life. Look at verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, look, understand what she's really saying. Jesus, this is all your fault. I mean, Jesus, I've been following you. I've watched you heal total strangers. I've watched you heal people that were not even deserving of being healed. 
But when it came to Lazarus, we sent word to you. You're supposed to love this guy. You don't even give us the time of day. If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. If you would have been here, Jesus, I wouldn't have had to watch him die. That's what's going on here. Verse 22, but I know, I believe, I trust that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, Jesus, even as brokenhearted as I am right now, even as angry as I am at you right now, Jesus, I still believe that God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds like any good Jew in the first century would respond. You know, okay, Jesus, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, it's okay, Martha. One day you're going to see Lazarus again at the resurrection. And she said, I get that. I mean, that's what every Jew says at every Jewish funeral. You know, we're all going to rise from the dead, and we're going to have one big party, and we're going to see Moses and David and Noah and Jonah, and we're going to tell great stories. I get that. I'm not arguing that theologically, Jesus. But you, forget the resurrection, forget the future. You could have prevented this from happening now. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 25. Jesus said to her, classic line, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Martha, you're, you're right to acknowledge that God, gave, God will give me whatever I ask. But Martha, understand, this is bigger than that. You're right to understand that I am a miracle worker and I could have gotten here and I could have saved Lazarus. But Martha, it's so much bigger than that. Jesus says, I am the personal embodiment of the resurrection and life. And let's just be honest, you don't make a claim like that. You don't make a statement like that without backing it up. And by the way, just so you know, that's what this story, this situation, that's what this moment is all about. Who really is Jesus? And so Jesus says, here's the moment. I am going to make a claim that I haven't made up until now. You're looking at resurrection. You're looking at the embodiment of life. Verse 25, he goes on to say, the one who believes in. It's interesting. There's not a word in the Greek for trust. There is no such word. And the New Testament's written in Greek. So John puts together two small Greek words, believe in, and that's what's translated trust for us. He who believes in or trusts in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And I still believe that, even though you didn't do what I asked you to do. I still believe it, even though you didn't come when I asked you to come. I still believe it, even though you let my brother die. And then Jesus, he asked to be taken to the grave. So picture this, all these Jews have, have come from all over to support Mary and Martha through their time of mourning and grieving, and there he stands with all the mourners. And you get to verse 35, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, only two words. If you're having a hard time memorizing a, a Bible verse, this might be the one to start with. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Let's just say that together. Jesus wept. And you all know at least one. And I love this verse because instead of just rushing in and doing a miracle, Jesus pauses to feel exactly what Mary and Martha have been feeling. Exactly what you felt as you've stood by a grave of your loved one. Exactly what you felt when you felt like God didn't come through for you or exactly what you felt when you realized, wow, my kids aren't going to turn out the way I thought they were. And it's as if Jesus pauses and says, I know how you feel. I get it. And I mourn with you. And then here's the great epic part of the story. Verse 39. Take away the stone, he said. 
But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. Jesus, I don't understand if you understand the timeline. Remember we sent the message and then you didn't come. You stalled. Four days. I love what the King James says. By now he stinketh. I don't know why we don't talk like that anymore. Wouldn't life be better if we talked like, by now he stinketh. You know, I think my dad said that to me at dinner one night. You stinketh. You know, go take a shower before you eat. You know, but, but anyway, by now he stinketh. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Now look at this. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Are they watching? They're listening, aren't they, Right. That they may believe that you sent me. God, I'm talking to you right now. I know they're watching. I want them to understand the connection we have. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I wish I could have been there. I mean, how cool would it have been there to see this mummy guy come bouncing out of that tomb, you know? And if there was any doubt that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, all the loopholes were closed in that moment. And I love how the story ends, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary... And had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Even if they didn't believe, they did now. And their trust and confidence grew. Great story. But this is what I want to make sure you hear from the story. In this story, Jesus didn't just leverage a painful situation. He created the painful situation. And you got to understand it's because the growth of our trust and confidence in him is that important. In fact, God is so concerned that our, that our trust and confidence in him grow, he will leverage anything and he will leverage everything to make it happen. Even pain. Even suffering. Even tragedy. I mean, this is what you got to understand. <laughs> pain is not new. It's not an argument against God. Tragedy is proof, isn't proof of anything. But tragedy, suffering, pain, they're just part of the journey. It's just part of the plan. And you've got to understand, that's the road that Jesus is taking us on. C.S. Lewis once made this quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. You know what he's saying? When we're going through those prosperous, easy times of life, we're really not that in tune to what God wants to say to us. But when we find ourselves with our life unraveling and the rug being pulled out under us, and there's pain, there's suffering, there's tragedy, all of a sudden when God speaks, it's as if he's speaking to us through a bullhorn and he has our undivided attention. But it's not accidental. It's intentional. Now, having said that, how do you respond to something like this? God's out to get me, so I'll trust him more. I mean, how do you respond to that? Really, there's only three options. Here's the first one. You can decide since there's pain and suffering in the world, there must not be a God. People do that all the time. And I want you to listen carefully because I know some of you, that's a big deal to you. If your big issue is there can't be a God because there's pain and suffering in the world, all you've proven is this. All you've proven is that God, the way you would like him to exist, doesn't exist. And that's true. So you got together with yourself, and you came up with your concept of God. You came up with your mental picture of God. In fact, you even gave him a job description. And then this God that you've created in your mind, you went looking for, right? But you can't find him. So you tore up this picture of God that you have in your mind, and you concluded, well, he must not exist. I want you to know you're exactly right. The God that you created in your mind does not exist. 
But that says nothing about whether or not there is a God, and you, you, really, you really need to keep that in mind. By the way, if your whole response to pain and suffering is that there's no God, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I, kind of, I just feel sorry for you. I feel very, very sad for you. Philip Yancey has written a book entitled Disappointment with God. This is what he says. There's only one thing worse than disappointment with God. It's disappointment without God. In other words, the tragedy of deciding that there is no God is that the pain and suffering doesn't go away. The only thing that really goes away is your hope. Because now all of a sudden you're left living in a world that has no purpose, no meaning whatsoever. You're never going to be able to make sense out of the things that drive you crazy. So option number one, you can just decide since there's so much pain and suffering in the world, there must not be a God. Here's option number two. There is a God, I just don't like him. I'm mad at him because he's not acting the way I think he should act, so I'm going to take my faith and go home, right? But when you do that, once again, what have you solved? Does your pain go away? No. Life get easier? Nope. Any less tragedy in the world? No. More people fed? Nope. Less diseases? No. Fewer deaths? No. And once again, you're not only disappointed with God, now you find yourself in a situation where you're disappointed with God and you're disappointed without God. And again, you've turned your back on the only person who can make any sense of the pain and suffering that's going on around you every day. And you'll, I'll just tell you, you're going to spend the rest of your life disappointed and disillusioned. Option three, you get to the point where you decide there really is no way to make sense of all the pain, the suffering, and tragedy in the world apart from saying, God, I don't like it, but you're God and I'm not. And you're not a God that's made in my image, and you're not interested in my job description for you. So God, I'm just going to be patient, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to serve you. And there are going to be times when I'm going to be really, really mad at you, but that's okay, God, you can handle it. But here's option number three. I'll wait patiently for you to finish what you've started. It's the road we're on. And God, you're taking me here for a reason. And I don't know where we're going, and I don't know why we're going there, but I'm, I'm just going to. I don't really have an option, God, except just wait patiently to see how this is going to turn out. But I'm going to continue to trust you and believe in you and have confidence in you. I started the church 21 years ago. Our very first Sunday, we were in East Cary Middle School. We had an attendance of 93, about half of my family. They all went back to their real church the next week and was left with this little group of people. One of those individuals was a lady by the name of Nancy. Showed up the very first week because of a flyer I had left on her door. Please come visit our new church. Single mom, two small children. And uh, she showed up. And, and uh, she had been in our church for years and years and years. And I'd watched those kids grow up. And she had become like a sister to many of us. She eventually met a great guy, Mark. They moved down to Sanford, opened up a little restaurant. And her son, Colin, had grown up to be a fine young man in his 20s. And it was a Friday night, I'll never forget, we were here, we were, we were setting up for our fall festival. And my phone rang, and I didn't recognize the number, but it was Mark, her husband. And he says, Mike, I'm literally two blocks from the church. I need, I need you to come down here. So um, I went down, I said, what's going on? He says, well, we, we haven't been able to get hold of Colin since Monday, so Nancy asked me to drive up here and check on him his apartment. And she, he says, I can't get in, it's locked. But if you look through the window, 
you, you can tell he's dead. Looks like he's been dead for a few days. And his phone is just blowing up because she's calling. She wants to know what's going on, what's going on, what have you found out, what's going on, what's going on. You know, that mom, that instinct, right? And he says, I don't know what to do. I can't tell her over the phone. I've got to stay here. The police were starting to arrive. I mean, he couldn't go in without authorities. And, and he said, would you go tell her? So I took Carl with me, and we hopped in the car, and we rode down to Sanford, and we went to this little restaurant that they were starting. He told me she should be at work, and we got there, and she wasn't there. So we were waiting, and she walked in the back of the and she just beamed the way she beamed when she saw us. But she could tell immediately by our facial expression that um, this wasn't good. And immediately, she said, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. And I said, we, we need to go somewhere. So there was a little area, and we went upstairs, and and I had to share with her that, that Colin was dead, that her son was dead. And I'll, I'll tell you, if I live to be a thousand, I will never be able to erase from my mind um, the, the wailing of that mom. I'm telling you, there is nothing more heartbreaking than a brokenhearted mom. And it began a journey. It's been over four years ago. Well, this past Christmas, uh, one Sunday afternoon, I got home from church right before Christmas, and she had sent me an email. And uh, she wrote me. She said, the last four years have flown by. Funny how everything has a time that revolves around when Colin left this earth to be with God. She said, looking back the first year, I was in total shock, disbelief, numb. I pushed myself hard to, con to continue to work at the restaurant, stay as busy as I could, try hard not to think or remember. I remember a lady, a table of elderly ladies came in shortly after Colin passed. I waited on them. They all stared. Finally, one of them asked me, are you the woman who lost her son, the owner? She said, that was the first time I'd heard it put that way. I remember looking at all of them, smiled and said, uh, yes, I, I guess that's me. I went to the back in the kitchen. I felt sick. I couldn't breathe. I had to go out back for air. That's when I realized that these waves would continue to come over me and hit me, and they would come crashing down. I felt like they took me under and under to where I couldn't breathe, and then I would come back up for air. She writes, life has changed for me since October 24, 2010, because part of me went to heaven. People often ask me if, I, if I'm mad at God. Honestly, I never have been. Yeah, I yelled at him, in the beginning especially, because I wasn't ready to say goodbye. But was I mad at God? No. But people ask, and I tell them, you know, I'm not mad because I know that the same God that gave me that perfect boy, the same God that put the stars in the sky, the same God that made the ocean and the air that I breathe, surely he has this all figured out. He needed Colin. He had a plan for him, much bigger than anything that Colin was going to do on earth. He said, and then she talks a little bit more about some different things that had happened, but she concludes by saying, I've been able to reach out to so many lost friends that knew him, one who was even suicidal. I didn't think I was equipped, but instinct kicks in. And God is using me to love and to encourage so many lost young people. I just wanted to give you the update since it's been so long. And then in typical Nancy fashion, I hope and pray God is giving you his peace. And I'll be honest with you. I, I had a hard time reading that, just seeing through the tears that day. I'll never forget that Sunday afternoon, especially as it went into much more detail. 
But as I read it, I realized even as disappointed as she had been with God, I knew that she hadn't faced all of this disappointment without God. And she's coming out the other side, and she still believes, and she still trusts. And she will tell you story after story of how God has used this tragedy to do something in her and through her because that's what God does. And sure, she's still disappointed, but this is what's cool. She doesn't have to be disappointed without God. Listen, pain, suffering, tragedy, it is not the exception to the rule. It's part of the journey. And it's part of the journey so we can understand the importance of rock-solid trust and confidence in God. Listen to me. If you feel like God is doing something to you, you'll be tempted to lose faith in God. But when you can begin to understand, and it may take months, it may take years, but when you can begin to understand that God is doing something in you so that he can prepare you to do something through you, when you get that perspective, then you'll be like Lenny. You'll be, you'll be like Nancy. And you'll emerge out the other side of your painful circumstance. And you'll still believe. And not only will you believe, you will believe more than ever because he carries you through. Let me say one last thing. You're like, man, this is like the Lord of the Rings movies. It's like, it's, I think it's going to end. It won't end. So one last thing. One last thing. If you find yourself in the middle of a painful circumstance this weekend, I, I would encourage you to add this to your prayer. I know you're praying. I know you're praying. I would encourage you to add this to your prayer. God, I need to see you in this. I need to see you in this. I have prayed that I know a thousand times. God, I know what I want to happen in this situation, but I don't know what your will is. I need to see you in this. Because if I can see you in this, God, there's hope. God, if I can see you in this, then there's an end. God, if I can see you at work in this somehow, then I know that your grace is going to be sufficient regardless of the outcome. But God, I got to see you in this because right now, you seem very, very silent and very, very absent. Um, your pain, suffering, not the exception. It's the journey. And Jesus made it very, very clear in John chapter 11. It's an important part of the journey. Let's pray. Father, we all have a story. And one of the reasons we all have a story is because it's one of the things that keeps us either dependent on you are incredibly angry at you. But Father, to be angry just means that we're going to go through it without you. And there's just no way to go. <laughs> so God, whatever our situation is, may we see you in it. May we get a little glimpse of you at work. And God, regardless of... Uh, what we learn and what happens. Pain and suffering is pain and suffering. So even in those incredibly tough times, give us moments of relief. 
where we see you and trust you. And help us to understand it's not the exception to the rule. It is the rule. It's the road you're taking us on to keep us dependent on you. Help us not to look for heaven on this earth and realize heaven comes later on. But you've promised us in this life there'll be trials, there'll be tribulations, there'll be tough times. But that you'll be here with us. In your name we pray. Amen.